All right, welcome to the podcast. I'm always really pumped, but I'm especially pumped this morning because we have special guest Megan Cow. Megan Cow was the runner-up for the city prosecutor. She's been a longtime um, defense attorney. She's been a prosecutor. She's had federal cases, state cases, and she's just an all-around great legal expert to have on the show. So thank you very much for coming on. Good morning, how's it going? Super good, thank you for having me. Right on. So this week, there's a lot of controversy um, around the Michael Hirakawa case. That was the Capitol, Capitol Place sex assault case that everybody's talking about. And there's been a lot of like, um, a lot of controversy over the way that the bail has set. So I ask you, Ms. Cow, uh, what are your thoughts on the case and the way that the bail was handled? So I'm going to talk to you about it as from the perspective of a deputy prosecuting attorney or deputy attorney general. Then I'm going to talk to you about the perspective from a defense attorney. All right. And very often, governmental attorneys have never been defense attorneys, and so they don't see that aspect. Um, but there are some defense attorneys that have been prosecutors or deputy attorney generals. So it's a very different perspective. So as the prosecutor or the attorney general, in, in our mind when we charge a case, we look at it and you know, we set bail based on the facts and circumstances of the case, not necessarily whether the defendant can or cannot pay, the inability or ability to pay bail. Mm -hmm. And we ask the court to set it at that amount. And we don't think anything of it. If the defendant bails out and there's a grand jury indictment, often the prosecutor or the attorney general will come back and ask to increase the bail. Um, and they don't think twice about it because that's the procedure that's been followed for years. And in the city or in the state, we continuously do things as they've done, been done before. We don't change things up, especially if there's not a real reason to change things up. And so we increase the bail as the governmental attorney, and then the defendant has to either go back to the bail bondsman and negotiate something else or, or pay a new bail. But the prosecutor doesn't think about that because the prosecutor's job is to be the attorney for the government. Mm. Now you look at it from, from the defense's point of view. So um, I'm just going to give you a hypothetical just so you can understand this. So, and this happened in the Kahala stabbing case. As a defense attorney, we look at the bail and let's say it's set at 500,000. And so we, we go to a bail bonds company and we assist our client in bonding out. They pay the $50,000 fee to the bond company and now there's a bond posted. Mm -hmm. Then the government goes and gets a grand jury indictment and raises it to a million dollars. Now, as a defense attorney, we're a little upset because our client already bonded out. We negotiated the bond with the bond company and we arranged for our client to be bonded out. But now the government's coming back and saying, well, since you bonded out or you were able to bond out, we're going to increase the bail now. Yeah. And so as a defense attorney, it's not fair for our client because we've already, we've already bonded out. We've already paid the fee. Uh -huh. But prosecutors don't look at it that way because most of them have never been defense attorneys. And quite frankly, most of them don't care about where the defendant stands financially. And so they don't think twice about the defendant having to post yet another bond or post another fee to a bond company. So it's, it's a little unfair and I don't think governmental attorneys do it on purpose. I think this is just the way it's been done forever. 
and they don't have any reason to change that procedure and so they continue to do it so what happened in the hirokawa case is they i think it was set at five hundred thousand dollars that's he correct posted, he posted a bond which means he paid a bond company approximately fifty thousand dollars yep which he doesn't get back I, most yep. people don't know that but once you pay the bond company fee you don't get that money back mm -hmm. Then what happened is the deputy attorney general filed a motion to hold the defendant with no bail. And yeah. so what that means is she was telling the court that this guy is such a risk of flight or risk to reoffend that we are asking to hold him without letting him post any bail at all. The problem with that, I mean, uh, you know, is this case did not qualify under the statute. And that was clear from just my knowledge of what the statute requires. The attorney general, I guess, felt she needed to file the motion mm -hmm. for whatever reason, but the facts of this case don't meet the criteria. For example, the defendant has to be a serious flight risk, meaning that he's either facing life in prison or um, he's been convicted of other crimes to show that he's a flight risk. Mm -hmm. or he's done something that shows that he's going to tamper with the witnesses, mm -hmm. but none of that applied in this case. And so, um, you know, I'm not sure if I was the prosecuting attorney or the deputy attorney general, I would file that motion. Yeah. And I reviewed the motion just because I geek out on stuff like this. And it was cited that because he had been to Colorado and had flown to the mainland now somehow because of virtue of being, somebody who went to school on the mainland and having recently gone to Colorado for whatever recreational reasons it might've been. Now he's a flight risk after being charged. I don't really like that little workflow, how it's set the bail first. Oh wait, he posts the bail. Now let's go ahead and cry foul and try to put him in. And then if he happens to have taken a trip for whatever reason earlier, now he's a flight risk after being charged. I don't really like that little workflow. Do, do you think there's ever going to be like a change, you know, now that we have a new administration coming in, do you think there's going to be a change in the way that we, we charge people specifically like that? No, I, I don't see that process changing with this new prosecuting attorney. He's never been a defense attorney either. Mm -hmm. And so he doesn't have that perspective. And like I said earlier, they don't really care, even if they don't, they don't think twice about the fact that the defendant has paid a bond fee and will likely have to pay an, another bond fee or will lose that bond fee if he's held without any bail. Yeah. And that's unfortunate because I've always, I'm a bail bondsman, obviously. I've always like felt like I lost a part of myself when somebody has put up so much money and they're supposed to be charged for a criminal act. It's separate. Like if you try to now as somebody who's prosecuting on the criminal side, like, oh, let's go ahead and go after him financially too, mess with his bail, or just take away his right to bail after posting a tremendously high bail amount. I really feel like that needs to be brought up. And I don't know, maybe this podcast will help. You never know, right? You can try to bring it up to the new prosecuting attorney and see what he says. <laughs> I will get on my soapbox and just try to make that happen because there's so much involved in getting a bond that high you have to have co-signers, qualified co-signers. Can I just be somebody off the street who knew the guy for a day or two? It's like parents got a co-sign. I bet they took a lien on a house too to guarantee that he goes to court. There's so much skin in the game to guarantee that he goes to court. And then 
it'd be one thing if you got like rearrested for some stuff, but no, it's been two or three weeks, nothing's changed, and now they want no bail. I've always kind of taken offense to that, but anyway, we'll move on. So, but oh, Nick, sorry. I just want to point something out. Yes. You know, that's perspective. A deputy prosecuting attorney and a deputy attorney general have no idea that it takes all of that just to get a bond signed. They don't know about co-signers. They don't know about collateral. They don't know about checking on property. They have no idea. They've never done it before. So it's a lack of perspective. Ah, okay. Very good. So um, we'll move into the, the second sort of, I hope that we could add perspective to. Um, there's been a series of like raids and I would just say that these poor girls are getting rousted up if anything, by the government. But there's been a lot of like raids on Asian massage parlors. Um, my question to you is, what do you think about this specific target, the Asian massage parlors? And then secondly, the key is, we have an administration that's sort of like a lame duck administration, and there's going to be a transition to a new city prosecutor who hasn't mentioned an attack on Asian massage parlors as like, a keynote of the election. What's the role of like a lame duck city prosecutor and how does that relate back to these like raids on Asian massage parlors? So the massage parlor investigations started with Keith Kaneshiro. He put together a team of investigators within his office to start investigating and basically going after these massage parlors. But interestingly, he wasn't charging anybody after yeah. they raided the massage parlors. And that to me is a big red flag. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why they were doing it, but I will say that there was a precedent set with the gambling machines with Tracy um, Yoshimura's Yoshi case. Yeah. So Keith Kaneshiro kind of tested the waters with the gambling machine cases. And basically what he did was he took private property, Tracy Yoshimura's and the other defendants gambling machines, but he didn't charge them for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I believe our federal uh, district court judge, Judge Kobayashi said that that was okay. You could take that property, forfeit it, and then assign it to the asset forfeiture division of the prosecutor's office, even if there was no charge. Mm -hmm. And although that's legal, to me, that's very shady because if you're gonna take someone's property, then you have to charge them with a crime. You can't just go in and take private property. I think that's unjust. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why Keith Kaneshiro initiated these investigations, but you know, it could be that whatever cash they're, they're taking during these raids, they're able to keep and assign it to the asset forfeiture division of the prosecutor's office because they laid the foundation and precedent with the gambling machines. And so because this is legal, they're allowed to do that. But to my knowledge, there hasn't been any um, charging based on those raids. Wow, yeah. I could have a whole nother podcast just specific to like the Asian massage parlor, like chargings, because usually there's um, like the show or Kabuki theater for the press. And you see like this raid and there's always like a, a setup where the, the media is there and then a lot of times nobody gets charged and then the times that the people do get charged it's been my observation because i bail out like probably close to all of them honestly for the most part they go to court um and 
it seems as though they blanket charge everybody in the massage parlor specifically to try to get one or two people. And I've just never, it, it's just never really sat right that somebody who might just be in the massage parlor now has to go through this whole rousting when they initially go and do the raid. There's always cash somewhere in there. So you never know where this cash is going, you know, it's being seized and where is it ultimately going. And then when the girls do get charged, it's always these older Asian ladies who aren't these menaces to society. And then they always get charged like six, eight, 10 people in an indictment when they're really just going after the one person. They're hoping that somebody rolls over and then they can build the case against the one person. There's too much collateral damage in that. I hate how they do that. There's too much collateral damage. Yeah, so prostitution is hard because you have to have one of the two that made the agreement for money for sex testify. And so when I was a deputy prosecuting attorney, we had the morals division, the police officers, male police officers would go into the massage parlors, get the agreement for sex for money, and then we would arrest the prostitute and charge her. Um, there were the a lot of worker. She's a sex worker. Sex she's worker. A sex worker. Okay. She's a sex worker. She's involved okay. in the industry. She's a sex worker. Yeah. So that's what we were doing. But I think with the recent increase in trafficking, that may have been a reason for Keith Punishiro to start these investigations into massage parlors. Mm. But again, to my knowledge, and you know, I don't know everything that goes on in that office, but to my knowledge, they haven't charged anybody with sex trafficking, which yeah. is a huge charge. And and if that was the intent in going after the massage parlors, then they should charge someone with, with sex trafficking. They shouldn't just be raiding these, these establishments with no charges. I think that's very unfair. Yeah, and just, I, I know you're in the position where you can't speculate, but I'm in the position where I could totally speculate. It seems as though on the federal level, there was funding to be had for certain law enforcement divisions if there are targeting or going after human trafficking. So there's a budgetary sort of like surplus going around if you show that you're going after human trafficking. And then there's also what's being seized and then goes right back potentially at some point back to the city prosecutor's office. There's, there's money. And sometimes, you know, they say follow the money. And I can't help but think we had a corrupt uh, city prosecutor in Kathy K. Aloha. We had a corrupt a uh, police chief in Louis K. Aloha. There's all this money involved. I just think these poor, I mean, I guess I'm advocating on behalf of people that are doing things that are technically illegal, but I feel like we're just being heavy handed with these Asian massage parlor um, workers, as opposed to going after like more serious crimes, right? Yeah, I mean, every prosecutor gets to choose how he or she wants to run the office and Keith Conisher made this you know, his kind of, his priority. So Dwight Natamoto followed along and has continued to uh, go after massage parlors because Keith Panashiro made that his agenda. Yeah, well, we got a new city prosecutor coming in. Hopefully things change. I don't think these older Asian gals need to be treated so poorly, but let's move on. Uh, last thing, um, we are gonna continue to talk about money. Louis K. Aloha. Um, it looks as though the federal case, he's going to have to pay $455,000 in restitution. He has a pension where every month he gets $9,700, of which $7,000 will be garnished for restitution. Um, 
what are your thoughts on the sentencing? And then what are your thoughts on like the restitution that's being garnished from his pension? I actually believe that the sentencing was completely fair and deserved. I know I've heard a lot of people say, why is Catherine Kealoha only getting 13 years? But what people have to understand is we have the sentencing guidelines in the federal justice system. And that is what guides the judges in sentencing a defendant. And in the District of Hawaii, rarely, if ever, have I seen a district court judge go above the sentencing guidelines. And in this instance, Judge Seabright did just that. He went over the sentencing guidelines and gave the reasons, for, which were very substantiated reasons, for sentencing the Kilohas to more than what was recommended. Yeah, the so, enhanced, enhanced sentencing, which yeah. I was happy to see. I was yeah, happy to see, I mean, yeah. I think it was deserved and I, I think it was appropriate and proper. Um, it's not like state court where you're looking at five years or 10 years or 20 years and then the judge is just stuck with sentencing you to that amount of time. The offense guidelines calculations in the federal system is a little bit more complicated than that. And it is a suggestion to the district court judge that the defendant should get a certain range of months and Judge Seabright went over that way or not way over but he went over the recommended sentence yeah awesome and then you have a degree in accounting and there's also the there's the four hundred fifty five thousand dollars that was like restitution for the federal cases there's also the two hundred and fifty thousand dollars golden parachute uh payment that was given to uh, Louis K. Aloha simply to go away and not sue the state after he got like fired. So what do you think is going to happen with the, the initial payment and then the 250 that's floating around that isn't going to be garnished apparently? So the restitution is of course very appropriate. You know, Grandma Puana and Uncle Gerard Puana suffered during that civil trial. I actually sat there and watched it and I mean, if people don't know, what happened was grandma and uncle sued Catherine Kialoha because she stole money from grandma's reverse mortgage. Yeah. And in turn, Catherine Kialoha sued grandma and uncle back and said, well, no, I didn't steal your money. And in fact, you stole my money and you owe me money. And she testified in that civil trial and the jury just loved her. And so they found in her favor and they found that grandma and uncle owed her money. And so what happened was grandma lost her home because she had to pay that judgment amount. And, you know, it was completely unfair, but that's Catherine Kiloha, you know, she could convince that whole jury that she did nothing wrong. Well, then we go fast forward to the criminal trial and the criminal attorney, uh, assistant United States attorney, Michael Wheat, you know, is a much better investigator than the civil attorneys. And so he finds that Catherine Kialoha put forth fake evidence and fraudulent evidence in the civil case. And so he tries to put that into the, into the criminal case as evidence. And eventually they get the restitution amount that was ordered against them in the civil trial. So it's completely fair. That's exactly what should have happened. I'm glad that Michael Wheat stepped in and obtained that judgment for grandma and uncle. And now, yeah, they're going to they're gonna garnish Louis' pension because he was part of it. And so um, I'm not sure why the 250000 is not being garnished. The city will have to 
file a judgment in the court and then file a motion for garnishment if it's possible. I'm not sure why they haven't done that. Yeah, because if if he's sentenced to the seven years, we'll see how much he actually gets ser- uh, has to serve. But it's going to be approximately seven years. And shoot, with the amount that he owes and the way that they're garnishing, first, what a nice pension. $9,700 a month. Way to go. But then I really feel like the audacity to accept or to negotiate an extra $250,000 at the end, especially after all the stuff that he had he had to and he participated in how did he get the extra 250 and now the city has to go after that 250 at least we know with the pension it's there if they choose to try to garnish it right yeah you know that subject is a whole separate podcast and an hour-long podcast of in and of itself just because the police commission doesn't have teeth you know the only person that objected to that $250,000 severance pay was Loretta Sheehan and subsequent to that payout, she resigned. You know, she completely resigned from that commission. So, you know, the commission needs more teeth, and I'm not sure how that's going to get done if someone's going to push forward for it. But there needs to be a check and balance on HPD. That that $250,000 should never have been paid out. Yeah, I think heads got to roll. That's the only way people got it. Like, I'm I'm happy that there's the target letter to. Um, Kaneshiro, I'm happy that people are finally being held accountable because if it was just business as usual and people got away with stuff like this, I mean, this is big money. $250,000 of taxpayer money to a guy who had already, you know, through his wife or was actually the party to steal hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is getting ridiculous. So my understanding is that's the basis for the target letter to Donna Leong. Yeah. If people don't know who that is, she was the corporation counsel. The corporation counsel is the lawyer for the city. And so the corporation counsel advises and counsels the city employees, including the police commission and HPD, as to whether or not they were permitted to pay the $250,000 out to Louis Keloha. And now the corporation counsel, Donna Leong, is being investigated by the federal government. Yeah, which is awesome because once again, uh, all feelings, no facts. I'll preface this. This is just the loose talk. Supposedly, we don't even really know where that 250 came from. And if it came from some sort of federal funding, then, oh, wait, now you're involved uh, with the feds because that was federal money that got paid out um, illegally to Louis K. Aloha. So that's going to be a whole nother media circus if she gets charged. And we're going to have to see what happens with those target letters and the subject letters. I I can't wait for people to be held accountable for that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's happening as we speak, Nick. Yeah, very good. So let's end up on some, some good news. Uh, how's life after the campaign? And what, what's new with uh, Megan Cow? Life is so great. I mean, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's wonderful. I can't, I'm, I'm super happy. I have a lot of free time. I have my life back. Um, not that I regret anything. I would have, this was the greatest experience of my life. I mean, running that campaign, you know, I didn't have fancy campaign managers from DC or, um, you know, people that have been involved in politics forever. It was me. I was the campaign manager. I did have a lot of volunteers for whom I'm super grateful. People stepped up 
that were never involved in politics before and helped the campaign so much. And I, you know, I could never repay them. And it was a great experience meeting wonderful people of Honolulu. There are so many wonderful people of Honolulu that I would, I would have never met but for this campaign and educating the public. I think that a lot of people learned a lot about the prosecutor's office just from our debates, my Facebook Live events. Um, I did a lot of meet and greets and they were able to ask me questions in private. And a lot of people, I think, appreciate that because not a lot of people know lawyers or former deputy prosecuting attorneys that they can just ask questions. And so, you know, it was an extremely wonderful and fulfilling experience, but I am happy to have my life back. My practice is doing extraordinarily well mm -hmm. and um, I have a lot of free time <laughs> and I have a life now. So life is great. Yeah, way to go. Okay. So you're a young, dynamic attorney who now has some free time, just in case I might have been exposed to some legal liability and I wanted to reach out and get a consultation from you. Uh, how do people reach out and find you? We have our website, megcowlaw.com. That's M-E-G-K-A-U-L-A-W.com. And my phone number, I give my phone number out to everybody. My phone literally never stops ringing. And my okay. number is... 808-864-8896. And, you know, people that are looking for lawyers or just don't know what to do because they have never been involved with the justice system ever, they just call. And if I can talk to them for like half an hour or 40 minutes and just explain, I think they get a better understanding and then they can make an educated decision on how to proceed. So Yeah, yeah, right on. And, and last, last thing, Everybody I bail out, I always tell them, hey, you know what? You're going to have to go to court, fill out the public defender like uh, form, and then two weeks later, you get assigned somebody. You got to play that little phone tag thing where you try to set an appointment and then go in and talk to somebody. You missed out on like two, three, four weeks already. There is nothing wrong with calling a defense attorney, getting the scoops right now, and then later if you want to hire them, right on. You're at the point where you haven't paid you got to like, it's, it's kind of messed up, but like a realtor could take you to go see two or three houses. Doesn't mean you have to buy all the different houses. Just, just go and talk, get counsel. And if you want to hire the person, then after go ahead and hire them. If not, fall back on the public defender, but get legal counsel right now because you've got to know what you're facing, right? Yeah, I, I'm definitely that person. I'm happy to advise people, you know, on a short phone call and I, mm. you know, I, it, whether they hire me or not later, it doesn't matter to me. I, I'm, I'm happy to answer people's questions. Yeah, no, and I, I think as, I don't know, just as somebody who has that, like, knowledge, yeah, you know, don't close the door. Like, leave it open a little bit. Help people out a little bit, even if they don't yeah. hire you. It's like a good karma thing. So I'm totally uh, happy about that. Right on. So, yeah, uh, that was our podcast. Thank you very much for joining, and uh, come back soon. Hope to do another one with you. Thank you so much, Nick. All right.